That's Titus chapter 2, page 1200, and I'll be reading from verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behaviour, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an enemy may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Saviour. Let's pray as we come to the word of God. Teach us, Lord, full obedience, holy reverence, true humility. Father, we could never learn any of those things unless you help us. And so we pray that you would, in Jesus' name. Amen. Almost exactly this time last week, I was standing in the kitchen on a Christian summer camp, helping a group of students to wash up dishes. And as we were waiting for the dishwasher to finish one of its rather lengthy cycles, one of the students asked the group which three words they would most want someone else to describe them with. Isn't that a great question? Imagine you overhear a conversation which three words would you most want to hear someone else describing you with? I wonder how you would answer. Would you say funny, attractive, clever, caring, hardworking, successful? What do you most want other people to think of you in three words? Let me suggest something from the passage commends the gospel, adorns the truth, or even makes Christianity beautiful. Because if we listen to what God has to say this evening, I think that we should leave this evening praying that somebody would say that about us. And we've said already in this series that Titus is Paul's mission strategy for Crete, and rather like much of Europe thinks about the UK today, Cretans in antiquity were seen by their continental neighbours as a little bit unrefined at best and downright untrustworthy at worst. The Cretans were the ones keeping the bars open whenever the gladiatorial games came into town. The Cretans were the ones on holiday whose binge drinking made the other holiday makers blush. Cretans were the ones who had leaders that were always first to break their own international agreements. 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. Also a bit like the UK today, Crete was an island overrun by false teaching, and particularly by a kind of false teaching that was happy to mimic the prevailing culture as long as it had a little bit of religion sprinkled on top. Powerless purity that led to camouflage Christianity, as we said last week. Step one of Paul's strategy was two weeks ago in chapter 1, 5 to 9 to appoint godly men who will teach the truth and exemplify it in their lives. Step two is this week. And at the heart of it is you. Ordinary Christians, but living extraordinary lives, transformed by the gospel that make God's truth look glorious. At the heart of God's strategy to win your family, your friends, your neighbours, your colleagues, is you and what your life says about his gospel. So what do you want others to think of you in three words? Commends the gospel, adorns the truth, makes Christianity beautiful. And now before we unpack what that looks like, we do need to remind ourselves of a key gospel truth. And this is really important. It's that we cannot live lives that adorn the truth unless we are being transformed by the truth. Let me say that again. You cannot live a life that adorns the truth unless you are being transformed by the truth. Now, usually Paul would remind us of that in his writings by starting with the gospel and then unpacking its implications. So you might be familiar with the book of Ephesians, where Paul starts in chapters one to three by explaining the gospel. And then in chapters four to six, he draws out the implications for our lives. In Titus, it's the other way around. Paul starts with the pattern of a godly life in chapter two, one to ten. And then in verse 11, there's a climactic four where he then begins to explain how the gospel functions as the power source for that pattern of life. And this week, we're only going to look at the pattern in one to 10. We're not going to get to the power source of the gospel in verses 11 to 15 until next week. The advantage of that is we get to spend a whole week next Sunday thinking about the gospel power source. The danger is that we leave this evening either very proudly thinking we can do this in our own strength, or very burdened thinking we have to do this in our own strength, but we know we can't. And so to avoid either of those outcomes, I would just like you to write in big capital letters at the top of your handout, if you're taking notes, like the warnings that you get in packaging do not use without Titus 2, 11 to 15. Because you cannot live the transformed life described in our passage tonight unless you're being transformed by the gospel that we're going to think about next week. Now, with that said, we can turn to unpack the pattern of life described in verses 1 to 10. And we're going to see three things. First, the mandate to teach the truth that transforms. Second, the manner of households transformed by the truth. And thirdly, the motivation to live transformed lives that adorn the truth. First, the mandate to teach the truth that transforms. 
the whole of Titus chapter 2 is bookended by commands to teach. So have a look down with me at verse 1, page 1200, if you've closed your Bible. Titus chapter 2, verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then look at verse 15, just over the page. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Now, all these commands are singular, which means they were addressed specifically to Titus then and specifically to church leaders today. And they're all present tense. That means they could be translated, go on teaching, go on declaring, go on exhorting, go on rebuking. So Paul wants Titus to keep teaching what he's teaching. And what Titus is meant to teach, verse 1, is what accords with sound doctrine. That primarily means the gospel. Think back to chapter 1, verse 1. It's the knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. But it also includes the implications of the gospel for our lives, which is why in verse 15, Paul can say, declare these things. And that is the whole of Titus 2, 1 to 15, both the the pattern of a godly life in verses 1 to 10 and its gospel power source in verses 11 to 15. That's what Titus is to teach. And by teaching it, he's to distinguish himself from the false teachers. Note the emphatic contrast in verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Whereas they, the false teachers, teach for shameful gain what they ought not to teach, 1 verse 11, you, Titus, are to teach what is sound, literally what is healthy. It's the same word that's used quite often in the Gospels when Jesus heals someone and they're restored to health. So whereas false doctrine is like a disease, Paul actually describes it as gangrene in 2 Timothy 3, Titus is to teach what is healthy, what is sound, what is true. And by bookending the whole of Titus 2 with this mandate to teach, Paul is saying that everything else in the passage All of the instructions about godliness depend on this teaching. You can't live a healthy life if you're not receiving healthy teaching. Your spiritual health depends on your spiritual diet. Or as Nick said a couple of weeks ago, your godliness is in the hands of your Bible teachers. Some of you might be familiar with the film, Supersize Me, Um, If you're not, it's basically a kind of documentary where an American man tries to find out how your body copes if you eat nothing but McDonald's for 30 days. And the answer is, unsurprisingly, uh, I'm not sure you really need a documentary to find this out, not very well. Uh, Your cholesterol goes through the roof, you feel really depressed. By the end of the month, you can barely walk up a flight of stairs And if you do make it to the top, you're much more likely to have a heart attack when you get there. Of course. Of course you are. Because your body won't be healthy unless you eat a healthy diet. And so too with your godliness. It won't be healthy unless you listen to healthy teaching. And so if you're here tonight and you are a church leader, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And if that's not you, if you're not a church leader, which I guess is most of us, 
then make sure you get this kind of teaching in your diet. This time of year, lots of us will be leaving London and moving on to other places. If that's you, have you made it a priority to find a new church where you're moving to, where you can get this kind of teaching? Others will be going away from London on holiday and also away from our normal routines. Have you thought yet about how you're going to keep feeding yourself while you're away? Others will be arriving in London for the very first time. If you're one of those people, we are so glad you're here. And we hope that you will make St. Helens your home. But as you look around different churches in London, is sound teaching the first thing that you look for? Have you committed to be at church every Sunday to hear it? Have you signed up yet for a small group in September? Because your spiritual health depends on it. You won't be able to live a godly life, a healthy life, without healthy teaching. But what does that healthy life look like? What kind of life accords with sound doctrine? For that, we need our second point. And so secondly, the manner of households transformed by the truth. Verses 2 to 10 of our passage, they contain a kind of portrait of a transformed Christian household. I remember back in chapter 1, verse 7, we saw that the church is God's household, his family. And that's why Paul describes an elder as God's steward, his household manager. And we also saw in chapter 1, verse 11, that the false teachers were upsetting whole families with their teaching, the household was the epicenter of their campaign. And so for both those reasons, Paul directs his instructions in our passage to different household groups. And so verse 2, to older men, which in Paul's day would have been anyone around 60 or over. In verse 3, to older women. In verses 4 and 5, to younger women. In verses 6 to 8, to younger men, including Titus. And in verses 9 and 10, to slaves. Uh, Each of these sections addresses the particular temptations of that group. But there is a common theme. I wonder if you noticed it as we read the passage. Verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled. Verse 3. Halfway through the verse, at the top of page 1,201. They, that is the older women, are to teach what is good and so train, literally, and so self-control the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled. Verse 6, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Over and over again, Paul stresses self-control. The ability to choose which desires to act on and which not to. Elizabeth Elliot called it the discipline to say yes to what God approves and no to what God forbids. And more than once in the passage, Paul says that is the defining mark of a household transformed by the truth. Of course, what that looks like in reality differs for each group. So let's look in a bit more detail at what Paul says to the different parts of God's household. Firstly, to the older men in verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, 
and in steadfastness. So for older men, self-control is summed up as dignity in conduct, sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, and soundness in doctrine, sound in faith, in love, in steadfastness. It's a bit cheeky of me to suggest this as a 26-year-old, but I wonder if Paul was thinking of that temptation that maybe gets stronger with age, just to become a little bit spiritually lazy. I think of Solomon in the Old Testament who went so well for so long and then drifted away from God at the end. And maybe you know someone for whom that is their story. And Paul says, don't let it be yours. If you're an older man, demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to keep your conduct dignified and your doctrine sound with a maturity, a Christian maturity, befitting your age and a gospel in line with the scriptures. Secondly, to the older women in verse three, older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They're to teach what is good and so train the young women. The temptation for older women in Paul's day would have been all about how they use their time. Most of them would have been at home all day, What were they going to do with all those spare hours? Well, they could have the girls round for a big glass of wine and a side dish of steaming gossip. But once again, Paul says, no, demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to be reverent in behavior. As someone God has brought into his royal priesthood, use your time not for drinking and gossiping, but to teach the young women how to live for Jesus. It's worth noting here that Paul gives that teaching role to older women. And so even though he restricts the the role of elder to men in chapter one, he does not think that women should have no Bible teaching ministry in the church. On the contrary, if you are an older woman here this evening then part of the way you demonstrate your transformation by the gospel is by using your time to meet up with the younger women in your RML group. And what are you meant to train them in? Well, let's keep reading from the middle of verse three. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive, to their own husbands. Uh, It's important at this point to be clear about a few things that Paul is not saying. Uh, First, when he assumes in verse four that young women will be married with children, that they will have a husband and children to love, he is absolutely not ruling out either singleness or childlessness as totally valid ways to live a godly life. That is really important. Remember, Paul himself was single and childless, and so were many of his co-workers. He's simply addressing what would have been the cultural norm in his day. And the normal struggle for women in Paul's day would have been when their husbands came home late for the second night in a row, or when their children or their housemates were up all night crying or making a racket, Would they have the self-control to fight those feelings of resentment and actually to lovingly serve those people? 
Maybe you recognize that battle. Second, when Paul says in verse 5 that young women are to be working at home, he is not saying that women should be at home and not in the workplace, nor is he making a comment on your uh, office's working at home policy. (laughs) Remember when Titus was written, all women would have been at home all day. And so the only question was, would they be busy at home or idle at home? And Paul is saying, be busy at home. Demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to use that time productively to serve other people and not to catch up on Netflix. His point is that women should be useful rather than idle, not at home rather than in the workplace. Third, it's really important to say that when Paul encourages young women to be submissive to their own husbands, he's absolutely not giving any justification for abusive behavior. And I'd encourage anyone who is experiencing any kind of abuse to speak to someone in the church family about it. The Bible teaches that husbands should lead their families in obedience to God, that that is a wonderful thing and that their wives should encourage them to do it. But that male leadership should be as gentle and as kind and as self-sacrificial as Jesus himself. It should be leadership that looks like Christ, that looks like the cross. And so there's absolutely no room for abuse. But even where that Christ-like leadership is present, it still takes a lot of self-control to let your husband take the lead. And so Paul says, demonstrate your transformation by submitting to your husband, even when you can see that your way of doing things might be much better. Again, maybe that's a struggle that some of you recognize. That's what self-control looks like for young women. What about young men? For us, Paul's instructions are much shorter. Verse six, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Whereas everyone else has some specific area that they need to work on, just a general command for the younger men. Urge them to be self-controlled, full stop. And that might be because Paul thought we needed to work on self-control in every area. And if he did, then he certainly wouldn't be alone in that opinion. J.C. Ryle, a 19th century bishop from Liverpool, wrote a whole book, Thoughts for Young Men, based solely on the premise that young men are the most spiritually infuriating group of people in the church. And at this point, all the women nod their heads. It might be, though, because actually we can work out what the big temptations are for young men without Paul spelling them out for us. So let me hit you with some statistics. We live in a society where the average household debt is £83,000, where the average person spends around two hours a day curating their image on social media, where the average man uses pornography at least once a week. So where will self-control make the biggest difference in our lives? Well, in resisting sexual activity, whether in person or online, Accept that between one man and one woman in marriage. To keep our spending within our own means and not to go beyond what we can afford. To care more about other people and to put them above the way that we look on social media. 
I know there'll be people here tonight for whom one of those is a real struggle at the moment. And if that's you, could I just remind you of what we said at the beginning? None of us does this perfectly, least of all me. That we're saved by the gospel of grace. And that to, to, to have any strength to make progress on any of these things can only come from that gospel, can only come from that grace. It's also worth saying, please come and talk to someone. We'd love to pray with you and to help you. And please come back next week to think about how that grace empowers us to change. Just to throw it out there, I think there is another reason why Paul doesn't give us much detail in verse 6. And it's because of what he says to Titus in verses 7 and 8. So have a look down there with me. Verse 7, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned. It's not super clear in the ESV, but those verses are actually dependent grammatically on verse 6. So the way that Titus is to urge the younger men to be self-controlled is at least partly by setting them an example, both in his life as a model of good works and in his doctrine by showing integrity and sound speech. So if you're a young guy like me and you want to live a life marked by self-control, have you thought about looking at your church leaders? Because their life should be a model to you of what that looks like. Finally, verses 9 and 10 to slaves. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything, They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Stereotypically, slaves in the ancient world were thought of as a bit lazy, a bit feckless, and generally insubordinate. They were often portrayed as prone to disobey orders and liable to nick your stuff if given half a chance. And Paul doesn't affirm that stereotype, nor does he affirm slavery in general. Actually, it was Paul's teaching that partly inspired campaigners like William Wilberforce to abolish slavery in the British Empire. But Paul does deal with reality as he finds it. There would have been Christian slaves on Crete. And to them, he says, demonstrate your transformation by having the self-control to buck the trend to prove people wrong, to be trustworthy with money, to be obedient to instructions. Now, of course, we don't have the same system of slavery today, but many of us will work in places where one of those things is a real temptation. Maybe it's the temptation to lie about how good our company's product really is. Maybe it's the temptation not to love that person in the office who bosses us around and makes life a misery. But through the gospel, we're able to say no to those things and yes to a life of quiet and loving self-control. So that's the portrait of a transformed Christian household. Different temptations for every group, but the same principle at work, all the same. Gospel transformation lived out in self-controlled lives. It's so different to the false teacher's message, isn't it? 
Their message is one of flashy, showy religion on the outside, but conformity to the world on the inside. And Paul's message is one of real change. Old men who are dignified instead of drifting. Young women who serve instead of slacking. Young men who control their bodies instead of giving in to pleasure. I mentioned at the beginning that I was on camp last week. And while I was there, one of the campers actually said, everything in life overpromises and underdelivers, but camp always delivers. Isn't that a lovely quote? I don't think he was just talking about the activities, though. I think he was talking about godliness. He, he wouldn't have put it like that. But I think he was talking about the fact that when he comes on camp, he knows what he's getting. He knows that he'll be loved. He knows that he'll be treated with respect. He knows that it'll be wholesome. He knows that no one will be left out or made to feel talked about behind their back. He knows that people will be self-controlled that they'll be godly. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for someone to say about St. Helens? Everything in life overpromises and underdelivers. But when it comes to St. Helens, when it comes to the 6 p.m., when it comes to their godliness, to their self-control, they always deliver. And actually, if outsiders were to start saying things like that about us, we'd be achieving exactly what Paul was hoping for. Which brings us to our third point, the motivation to live transformed lives that adorn the truth. We've already talked about the portrait of a Christian household in verses 2 to 10, but we did skip over three places where Paul uses the words that or so that at the end of an instruction. And maybe you spotted them as we went through. So first, at the end of verse 5, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Then again, at the end of verses 7 and 8, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned, so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. Or again at the end of verse 10, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Saviour. Note how the purpose in these statements is both positive and negative. And so negatively, Paul wants to defend the gospel against its opponents. Verse 5, that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, so that an opponent may be put to shame. Don't give any excuse to that non-Christian family member for their hostility to the gospel in the way that you conduct yourself. Apparently, Mahatma Gandhi once remarked on Christianity, I like your Christ, but I don't like your Christians. That shouldn't be possible in a church where verses 2 to 10 are being lived out. But Paul's purpose is also positive. Verse 10, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. So the truth doesn't just accord with godliness in the sense that it produces godliness. It also accords with godliness in the sense that godliness adorns the truth and makes it look glorious. 
Actually, that word adorn is the same one that's used in Revelation 21 in the passage that we often have read at weddings, where the new Jerusalem comes down from heaven prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. I still remember the day, almost exactly five years ago now, when my wife Hannah walked down this aisle, actually, uh, adorned in her dress and her flowers and her radiant smile. And of course, she already looked beautiful before that day. But all those adornments brought out that beauty for everyone to see. And in the same way, by living out the instructions in verses 2 to 10, our lives aren't to make the gospel look beautiful as if it wasn't already, but to bring out its beauty for everyone to see. It's a goal that the pattern given by Paul is perfectly suited to achieve. Even if you're here tonight as the most ardent skeptic, I think you have to admit that it's a beautiful way to live. And nobody wants to live in a world where people can't control themselves. Nobody wants to live in a world where men are watching pornography every week, where women resent their husbands and are always trying to one-up them where employees can't be trusted with money. Nobody wants that world, but we're we're powerless to do anything about it, aren't we? Unless we have the gospel. Unless we've been transformed by the truth. But if we have, then we have the power to live the kind of lives that function as living, walking, breathing, talking billboards for the gospel of grace. So what do you want other people to think of you? I hope you want them to say self-controlled. I hope you want them to say adorns the gospel. I hope you want them to say makes Christianity beautiful. Wouldn't that be an amazing thing for your non-Christian family to say after your summer holiday this year? Or for the campus to say on the camp you're serving on? Or for the colleagues at your workplace to notice as you slog away at your desk this summer. One final thing. The student worker at my old church became a Christian in exactly this way. He wasn't persuaded by any of the talks he attended. He wasn't really interested in reading a gospel or doing the word one-to-one. Not that those are bad things. But he was really struck by the way that his Christian roommate lived. By the fact that he never joined in with gossip. That he treated girls with respect that he never got wasted on a Friday night. It was beautiful. A life of self-control transformed by the gospel. Wouldn't it be amazing if the way that you conduct yourself this summer made its way into somebody's testimony like that? Let's pray that God would help us. Gracious Father, we thank you for the gospel of grace that has saved us, that has forgiven us, that is transforming us. And we pray that every day our lives might look a little bit more like this portrait, like this passage, that your name might be adorned and your glory displayed to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.